0: Welcome to the 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast, a retrospective. Hey, folks, Brennan here. Thanks for tuning in to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you want to reach out or follow us, we're on Facebook and YouTube as 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade, Twitter, Instagram, and Twitch as 25 Years of VTM, and on our website at 25yearsofvtm.com. Support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash 25 years of vampire the masquerade. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. All right, everybody. Today I give you Werewolf, Werewolf the Wild West. And uh, we're going to start off today pretty simple. Um, what we're getting into is the, I would say, the first kind of going backwards book, as they say, because we had the first edition, obviously, that launched Werewolf in the modern. And this is a, taking a look at a different setting for Werewolf in and of itself. We're dealing with uh, the frontier, the Wild West itself, and uh, today you're getting just me. I will say that because, um, well, let's all our hearts go out to Brennan because he has to deal with a black mold in his home, and I call it adventures in uh, in actually owning a home. But I hope it goes well for you, Brennan. Um, take it easy, there, brother. He was beat me today, but that's what happens, and the show must go on, as they say. And so here we are. Um, it's probably just as well. There's not a whole lot. Um, to the werewolf wild west book other than setting and so other books in the past might offer different rules different types of rules things to get into um, i would say even probably even different crossover ideals that they want to hold in here but interesting enough werewolf wild west is exciting because it doesn't take a whole lot to actually play in that setting we a lot of us at least in america definitely know of the setting of the wild west you grew up hearing about it histories about it And um, we definitely have classes through it, so it makes it even easier to understand those times. However, it will force you to dig deep in a lot of areas because they offer a lot of history through here for you to, obviously, as normal, to research and understand and get a better grasp on it. But you don't have to be a history buff to still enjoy this book. Where we're going to begin at is that there's a dedication in here that uh, I should probably say this. Uh, This book was designed by uh, Justin Achille and, of course, Ethan Skemp. And great minds went into this book. A whole slew of team uh, that helped them out with it as well uh, that's in here. But what drew my eye, other than the the writers here, because there are a ton of writers, um, is the dedication. Uh, the dedication put in this book says to Chief. Uh, to uh, let me talk right. The dedication says to Chief Joseph of the Nez Percy and to all those who suffered and died, whether white, native, or neither, to satisfy the greed and hate of their fellow humans. The West was never won; it was lost. It goes on to say, may your struggles never be forgotten. So I would say, obviously, to the, to the writers and the people who created this book, there was a lot in the West that was dark. It definitely wasn't all apple pie, like it's delivered in a lot of schools early on. It's definitely not a, not a good thing, a lot of what happened in the West, but it did happen. It is history. America is here because of what occurred, and right, wrong, or indifferent, there it is. But it adds in here a pretty powerful quote on top of it, in the dedication. And this quote says, our chiefs are killed. The old men are all dead. The little children are freezing to death. My people, some of them have ran away to the hills and have no blankets, no food. No one knows where they are, perhaps freezing to death. I want to have time to look for my children and see how many of them I can find. Maybe I can find them among the dead. Hear me, my chiefs. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun now stands, I will fight no more forever. And this comes from to the this is to the Nespeauncey tribe um, after surrender to General Nelson A. Miles in at the Battle of uh, Bear Paw Mountains in Montana in 1877. I think it's a powerful dedication to grab to throw in this book, and it sets a dark tone uh, for what this book is. Maybe rightly so, and uh, why I say maybe is because they build this as being in the introduction a game of primordial horror, horror mixed. With genuine historical action. Now, the Savage West is also a moniker thrown on top of this as well. And this is an outline. This is not the typical Wild West. Um, we're just going to focus on one type or the other. We're basically going to include all things. Everybody in here has a mixture of looking uh, very, very dark, uh, depending on what side you're choosing to stand on. But ultimately, um, let's just say Manifest Destiny plays a very villainous role no matter how you look at it. And it's definitely in this book. But let's talk about that a little bit. Primordial horror. What are they trying to convey here? Well, When I think of the Wild West, when I think of those that era, I think of the fact that it's explorer-based, isn't it? Anything you read about from at least the European side was that when you arrived here, you were exploring the landscape. You were coming to an area that was not like anything you've ever seen before. Everything was new and raw. The climate was different. Thick forested areas can can bleed over to just green pastures that lead to these great mountains and rivers of plenty. And it seemed like a, like a land put here for, for just the right-minded settler to take advantage of and be there. And to them, they thought the land was theirs, right? Because they took a boat to come across the way to start a new life. It must be their land then, right? Well, we know that Darktail goes, goes even worse, right? Because when you encounter those people who live here, like the natives, that becomes a problem. And it even adds to a little spice here, an obvious thing. In school, you're taught you're Americans. Everybody says you're American. Don't forget you're American it's not accurate, is it? You're of European descent. You didn't start in America. Your ancestors came from Europe and took over territory. So the only Americans are actually the Native Americans, right? That's why we made that distinction. Their Native Americans were were here. I guess since we're born here and we weren't born in Europe, we got to have a name. Thus, Americans were called. And this book more or less outlines that, that that's the mindset. But I also want to take this one step further. And you thinking about this West and the fact that these Identifications matter, and particularly of enjoying this book. We need to also look at the fact that, okay, if there's settlers coming over, all right, so why is it a bad thing? And I'm going to add to this. Inherently, it's not. Inherently, it's not. The Native Americans had a shared land mindset. They were already warring for territory amongst themselves, and they've gotten over a piece of it, right? Meaning that they were done fighting each other for every bit of land they came across. As you can imagine, as big as America is, Tribes settling in different areas had special advantages over others, and some didn't have very much, so they migrated and moved to where they could find game, uh, more more weather that was <laughs> better to survive, things of that nature that would help them thrive. And so naturally, they had their own conflicts, but they had learned to develop these uh, these nations, these uh, peace treaties that were made amongst themselves to be able to share and, uh, to share and swap cultures, histories, etc., but there's enough familiarity amongst them to where this is a uh, this is a given purpose, a given thing. I would like to to equate that to what Europe went through. Right, it's exactly what Europe went through. We're all sharing this big land, but we can't all claim. We want to claim the all the land, and of course, there's greedy amongst them and fights, and all this happens, and naturally, war on each other and everything else. Um, but why I make that statement is because there's a bit of a misnomer here when it comes to the idea of the worm. A lot of people have said to me. And directly even overlooked. Like, they, they asked it, but they don't know. Where did the worm spirits come from that were in America? Like, they could, they're they called the Pure Lands, but whenever you read, they had this worm problem that they came in and had to... Bane so powerful that they couldn't just kill them, they could, they could only trap them. And that's what the Uctana, Croaton, and Wendigo did. And Uctana, of course, took the uh, spearhead for doing that, right? Always a tribe of mysticism. They had their methods of trapping that very spirit. And thus preserving the Pure Lands. But we got to remember to separate what we know of the mortals and the guru. So the guru history of when they got here, there was worm here, but they were, it was so light that they were able to defeat it because the wild was so powerful. It was so strong. This land was untouched. And so when they came over in that regard, um, they brought what, uh, their, their descendants, but they were already people here on top of it. And they learned to mix with them. The people here knew how to live off the land. And this became one big nation of people, more or less. Now, I'm not claiming to be a Native American expert, but the books outline just that I review these books, but they're very pointed in pointing out that there was already people here before the guru got here, right? Call them Native Americans if that helps you. But we're talking back in the age when there was a land ice bridge, right? (laughs) Which, you know, happened. So climate change, land change, thousands of years go by. They're still here. So they have a pointed history of established descendancy of where they've been here on this territory. But I want to add a distinct thing. Native Americans do not believe they own land. It's, that's never it was never in their head or their makeup. They may have had territory where their tribe was or where they were now living. They migrated too, depending on the seasons as well. But the idea is, is not they don't own land because, you know, just you can't. There was no one to say that it was theirs. Of course, they had homes they staked out and said we were here. But the fact is, is that, they lived off the land. So it was almost saying that the land dictates where they go. Right? A belief in nature that if nature's weather shifts and it's better to grow food here and it's it's now harder to have food or sustain here, they would pick up and move to where the food is. And you know what happened? When they did that, the area that was abandoned, life resumes. Nature finds a way. Life finds a way. And it grows there, and it becomes bountiful again, so eventually they can come back there. Or another tribe moves in when it's there, or however it works. That's their mentality. To them, it was weird that settlers would come over and say, we're here now, this is ours, and we'll shoot you for it. That blew their mind, because to them, you would share the land. It's the only thing that made sense. Now, add this to the fact that when the settlers first get over here, there's a lot of problems they had. One was sustainability. They didn't know how to live off the land they now arrived at. And so a bit of commerce and trade had to happen as well. So what I'm pointing out is, we don't have to go over the history of the Wild West, is that when you think of these times of being explorative, there's a lot of social interactions that actually form the backdrop and setting of this book with natural racial tensions that are built in because that's what history proved. So what we're looking at when I say that is that you can't run this game and completely ignore the the differences of two peoples colliding. I do mean colliding. In a lot of cases, three and four, right? It wasn't just any one type of people. I want you to imagine a land that was considered wholeheartedly the dumping ground of Europe. The mentality that people who couldn't pay taxes or refused to pay taxes or weren't rich enough to be aristocracy but couldn't quite find any means to grow and and thrive in the rich caste there set their eyes on new land where they could get those opportunities. And while they were at it, Europe was like, take all our criminals too. And the thieving element came down there, and people who had nothing decided to come over in hopes of finding something. And this led to a cosmopolitan melting pot before it was even America, In in boasting that they were sent here on a survival principle. So now that you're sent over here and you see this, and here's basically a desperate ships are sent over here to establish colonies over in America. You have these Native Americans who had just figured out how how to have a tentative peace amongst themselves. Things are established. Here come the colonists. So how are they supposed to see it? And this book outlines it black and white. They were invaders coming over to take what's theirs. Is that fair? I think it's very fair. I think it's very fair considering how it has unfolded in history. This book outlines it. For instance, you have a map that's thrown in here off the bat to begin spreading this home where it shows you how the tribes, this is the Guru tribes, right, that get here. The European Guru tribes, also called the worm comers or AKA the worm bringers. They come here to the pure lands and they have established territories etched out on this beautiful map that they have in the book. And it shows you exactly what's going on this in and of itself, this picture, which is well, well done. shows these, uh, different color landscape of the uh, United States, but it also has like a marked area for the weaver coming in from the east, which is where a lot of the settlement happened, where expansion occurred from as everybody was moving west. But then it has actual spots that the tribes have etched out for themselves in their tribal markings right in there. My, I get a personal giggle out of the Glasswalkers being in Illinois. Excuse me. Excuse me. The Glasswalkers are iron Riders in this book. I apologize. But they're right there. The Wendigo are up in Canada, uh, but also the Wendigo are in the southwest as well. You have also a strong, strong Uctana presence in uh, directly south all the way is to Mexico uh, holding up there as well. This is... This is a decided uh, must have for werewolf fans. A lot of what has been described to you as territory hasn't really been placed in a map. And when you begin realizing, hmm, where would werewolf tribes be and what do they call territory home? When you see this, it opens up your mind to the actual conflicts you can naturally see of territory battles that, that SEPs get into. And that's just how tribal politics works out. Well, if it's already going to be a conflict issue with them, you can imagine. They all had one shared enemy. And I don't want to say enemy. I want to say problem child, as they saw it. Because for a brief moment, let's look at the opinion of the tribes that were coming over from Europe. No matter what tribe you had, the, once the word got out that there is this colony found and that they're going to make a colony, your kinfolk start leaving. Well, they're your kinfolk. You're not going to leave them behind. But you're not exactly sending your entire tribe there either. That's another misconception I'm going to throw out the window. There are still European werewolf tribes. Let's be realistic. The simple fact is, though, this is establishing a very strong, well, stronghold for those tribes that get here first and establish themselves immediately, which was the goal and point of them coming over. Now, we're going to walk through that a little bit so we understand that a bit more, because I feel this is going to help you understand this. And this is also part of the changes that are to werewolf as well. To begin to understand the books we've already reviewed up to this point, I feel this book is a cornerstone to help you understand how they prop up and how they represent that stuff. It made it very easy for me to go back and look at past notes and books we've already reviewed and visually be able to map out in my brain exactly what they had laid out and what was going on, which made it a unique experience, profound, worth uh, re-listening to my own podcast even on a couple times to see how I could have done something better or how I nailed it home, but I wish I could have included some stuff from the West book. If I just would have, you know, included that first, but even not of doing that, um, let's check this out. One of the lovely things I discovered was the Black Fury outlook, right? Why and how do Greek Black Fury tribe dominant women who earned their name in the Imperium for their bloody rights of how they kept the humans in check? And then later on, this translates over and sort of what folks want to say is man hating, but really isn't. And this book makes that distinction. It says the Black Furies weren't about hating men. They're about establishing equality for women. The fact that women were treated horribly uh, throughout history and the black fairies saw it a lot. And so they made it a point to avenge uh, the women who were abused and especially uh, excuse me, protect the innocent children was the thing they wanted to do, right? A protection of innocence. It's kind of what they were about and establishing an awareness and equality in some places and being one of the first to decide that we can go to war if that's your one. And that's actually probably their preferred. much easier to just kill a problem than it is to actually resolve an issue and teach someone to be different but they joined the early spanish expeditions to the new world attaching themselves to armies that would set foot in untouched california and mexico and there's historical references you can look that up we won't get into it but other than to say that that was a very interesting point to me they came over here kind of an expansionist mentality and they're in california and mexico checking it out but what are they doing there well they're trying to establish liberal. rights for women i hate saying liberal let me just say equality realizing that there needs to be an equal amount of uh responsibility handed out and they felt that in a land untouched by any any thought that nobody can be they were the first to be there to say that who should have rights and who shouldn't and who should establish the city and who shouldn't they're there at that ground to be able to establish that and they felt that if they could get there and teach their sisters how to stand up have a voice uh make yourself uh uh Worth something. You already were worth something. And that's not what's in question. What I mean by that statement is you have to prove to your competition, which were males. Everyone's looking to males to jump up and be in these uh, positions of settlers and, you know, farmers, ranch hands, landowners, all this stuff, that they're to come over here and do it. Now the Black Fury said, We came over with you to help support you and your right to do it first. Get out there with them. They got a few, they got cowhands, become a cowhand. They got cowboys, become one, become a cowgirl. Uh, they're going to they're gonna wrangle and break horses, then you should wrangle and break horses. You want to trade in gold, go find the gold, and then do that too. You can do everything they can do and get out here and do that. But they wanted to do it in a territory where nobody could tell them that this was not the norm. And that's what they set to do. Um, in addition to this, though, because of why they were there, they weren't taking over territory. This is one of the unique aspects of this tribe. When they get over here, they just this is where they settled. And granted, the the people they followed were on these expeditions that kind of veritably brought armies. They were in untouched land, and almost people didn't care to want. And they were trying to make something of it at that point. What's cool about that is that when they encounter the Windigo in Utena, more or less, it's like don't they, they don't care about them. And, and, and maybe maybe that's even of the wrong term. Not I don't care, but what are they doing? Okay, they're trying to make an equal thing. They got stuff going on. Equality, Okay um women in our tribe have a distinction of being able to be um as they get older on uh, the council of the wise they can do that too um we share some similar ideals we don't think our women are trash and definitely they have a place and uh all that stuff and and those ideals kind of get a common ground they could talk to but then they do one thing better the black furies without hesitation without question directly oppose any and all forms of worm tain in anything weaver Now, this is going to hit you on the nose. Didn't you just say they came over, Bob, to Spanish uh, Spanish expeditions in the New World and came with these armies? They did, but they had no interest in going into cities. The Black Fairies didn't want to go into a city, you know, because what have they seen of cities? Any city they've seen, it's on the back of money that's sent from somewhere else to influence that city's growth because somewhere else thinks there's money here and to establish an outpost to do X, Y, and Z. And that's not the way of things. That's not working with the land or working with what's here. That's also not um, working of the self, right? There's a bit of a Hellenistic ideal here that the Black Furies are kind of hammering home. That we came over on our own, too, to establish a, these homes on our own, too, and these lands on our, own, on our own, too, to protect them the way we see it, the way it's equal for everybody. And there's a way to figure it out. And we could live off the land and do it. That's what the lieutenant Wendigo liked about them. Seeing that, they said, OK, you can be here, no problem. And they went about their merry way. However, the Bonars were part of that whole different branch of what's going on. The Bonars have always been the redheaded stepchild of of Werewolf the Apocalypse. I've never really quite understood it. I just know that they were just written that way, and it does make them interesting. But at the same time, there's a tragic tale here, and I just wish somebody would say it. The Bonars arrive, and they come with the poor and criminal that Europe send on boats, literally purging itself of unwanted masses, much like I already said. These are the people that come with them, and to the Bonars, they're like I guess they're our kin, but to a Bonar, really any mortal populace is your kin that you're kind of farting around with, right? That's kind of the idea, and uh, they become type of low heroes, as I call them in the book, meaning that they're they're there and they're they're playing this uh, traveling hero because they really don't have a place either. And, and granted, cities are starting to develop, but in these cities, they got to handle whatever threats come their way to protect the settlers they come with. And when the settlers decide to take up land, it's really the mortals they're, they're allowing to do the sin, and then they're defending that sin. I say sin because when you find that there's a teepees in a tribe that's set up on a hillside, and they got running water, places to fish, and in the winter they might have a cave system that they're able to retreat to and live off of to, for warmth or whatever, and, but they're at the flattest point where land is, and it'd be a great spot to put up a whole wooden town if we could just get people in here to get to work, but we got to move them out of here. What do you think they did? Well, history would tell you more often than not, they didn't go in to buy the land. They just went in and killed them and took it, right? It was a hostile takeover. Like, we don't have any interest in talking to you about what you got. Now, why was it hostile? Let's understand how that works out. If I don't speak your language and I'm coming to your land and your territory, I don't know what you're living in. I don't know what your circumstance is, but I'm going to pass judgment on you because you're not wearing the clothing I'm wearing. You don't have the guns like I have. And, you know, you got these primitive bone arrows and you have some knives. And when I come walking up to talk to you, you're hooting and hollering and you come up with like a swath of people on horseback. That can be seen as a hostile interaction, often it was. And therefore, shots fired. You know, we just handled it the old school way. We chased you off. and We run you off. and We burned your stuff down. Now we have our land and we take it. Now, to the Bonars, they didn't know these this these people any more than their uh, kinfolk did. But when that happened, what do you think they did? They helped them establish the town, stuck around, and when the the blowback happened and these tribes came back to take what they had as they meet with the larger tribe and they come back on the warpath. Now you have Bonar spending off and fighting and, you know, they run into conflict with Wendigo tenant It's natural that that was going to happen, right? You could see that progression, but it didn't necessarily help the, the, the settlers uh, leave, right? It didn't help the, the natives get their land back. It's just just how it is. Now, you would think the Bonars then are the heralded the heroes. They get wealth and money, and everyone's paid for a job well done. Um, for whatever reason, the Bonars just seem like they can't win for losing. Like, they were here as these good guys, and they did this job, and yeah, we saved you from a threat. But ultimately, once that was done, we're sent packing. It's go on your way. Thanks for helping out. Interesting how that works out, right? Why, did, why didn't the Bonars decide, well, hey, we helped you. We saved this town. Well, now we're going to be the sheriffs of the town. Or we're going to be the deputies in the town, or we're going to be the town watch that protect you. So, but we earn pay. I don't know why. I would say logically that would be a step that you would want to take if you risked your life to save a town on the reg, enough to be considered a hero of the town. But apparently that's not their way. They decided, you know what? Humans are humans, and they leave. I suspect that's because to most Bonars, it's real shitty what happened, right? That after you have the town settled and you see what's going on, and eventually. You learn to trade with the, the remainder of the tribe that was forced to be here, but you sacked or killed. Who knows the reason, but they learn to trade with you. Someone eventually learns language to be talking back and forth. What happens when you learn the story that you came here and just slaughtered the people who rightfully had the land? How shitty would you feel? And that's my assumption. I think the Bonar's felt that sting of what they did and got it, but you can't take it back. And maybe they just decided to leave. Like we just move on. We go town to town doing this, and who knows that story? They don't get into it, but it opens up some cool, tragic RP or heroic RP or someone to play a lot of roles that help a lot of, a lot of players come in to where wanting to be the hero. This is a great hero start role. Deal with all the problems of that that would come with it and change the face of how your tribe maybe handles things. Who knows? Um, but Children of guy is another interesting story. I don't often hear the children of Gaia told in a villainous light, but you let me know what you think. Um, when they arrive here, they land on the eastern seaboard and, well, they're, they're happy, right? They're pleasantly surprised because they find the Croatan and the Uctena and they're all favorably together uh, in, in the spirit of cooperation because when they don't know each other, but the children of Gaia have a lot of amazing gifts, as do the Utena and the Croatan, uh, to help you talk to people that don't understand one another, to get the language, and they're willing to do that first. So when they come over and this happens, they're like, oh, you want to be here and why? Well, we want to help you. We want all the guru to get along and we're coming over here now. And you need to know of that. Well, remember not all tribes know of everybody at this point. So to the pure lands tribes, it's the Croatan, the Wendigo, Nutena. This was cool. This kind of explains what's going on. People are now coming over here. We didn't know why we didn't get it. And the children of Gaia saying, don't worry, we'll teach you all about it. We'll help you out. Well, we got to know your ways too. Do you mind? And of course they didn't mind. So they have kind of cultural sharing that goes on. That's pretty cool. However, some odd things start happening. See, the children of Gaia um, change a bit as far as the natives see it because the children start sending emissaries out from here and are going to the other tribes. And they basically take the stance of the fact that, well, we learned what their primitive religious beliefs are and we're slowly introducing Christianity to them. And we have a sort of sort of a deity worship that goes on you know we deist is as they they cleverly call it where we're showing them they can worship but that they also have to include christ right this is where it comes from like we're introducing that in there and that's what we're doing so we're doing this well so we're teaching them there so they can be taught and don't worry because they can be taught and we can uh, happily exist with religion in mind we know what's best for them and we can teach their our backwards brethren how to behave properly that's the stance the children of Gaia actually take. They truly believe that they're going around other tribes, telling them, hey, let's cool it. We can all get along. We're just going to teach these pure tribes how to be like us. Right? If they learn how to be like us, we're updating them. We're giving them better quality of life, better places to live in, showing them you can burn wood for heat, how to do all that, better ways to hunt. We got these guns. You know, we'll update them, but you know, you got to give them time and give us a chance. But the natives did not like that. <laughs> we, we could say that. It's because it felt. Well, you know what it feels like. I don't even have to explain it, but what assholes, I thought. That's my opinion. Um, but the Fianna were by far the worst. And this shocked me, too. The Fianna have normally been like, you know, you have a song, let's chill. We're kind of scalds. We tell stories. We love drinking. And they turn into the really the epitome of, of warmbringer. I mean, these guys come in, and um, when they land, they just invade, right? They settle all lands all the way to the Pacific, helping European influence extend beyond the Appalachians. That's like carte blanche what they came here to do. They brought farmers, they brought cattle ranchers, they brought uh, anybody who could take land and turn it into what would be considered profitable or usable. They came in and changed the face of it. And that's what the Fianna set out to do to establish these territories as being theirs. And they brought, I and mean, obviously their kinfolk is really who they're with. And their kinfolk are Irish and Scottish descent. And they're coming in mass because they didn't have anything, right? That's the that's the drop that they were given, that we're coming as, uh, as immigrants to, to the Americas and we're trying to make our way, but we have these protectors that are showing us how to do it, and we're just going to go across and get it done. And if Fianna didn't care. If they got to your territory and you were native, sack them. You could die or you can leave. Those are the options you got. And they were running them off of their territory. And so when you hit the few tribes that were there that called it theirs, mainly the Utenna, The Fianna were kicking the shit out of them and then turned around and said, build a farm, build a ranch and take all this. Kill all wolves, kill the bison, get your meat, get the skins you need. Winters are cold. We know that. But let's live, let's thrive. Let's make it happen. That's literally their their sole focus is what they came in to do, which made it a shock to me. Now, naturally, in all these, take it with a grain of salt because naturally there are those who go against the grain. But dominantly, this is the behavior of the Fianna that came in, right? The first on hand. Manifest destiny is really what they're coming in and saying they're, they're fulfilling. Now, we know the look of the Native Americans, but if you quickly look at the side of the settlers, and if you've read your history books, you already get that. They were coming over here to make it the land of opportunity, and they did feel they were better than Native Americans, and they did feel that they were more advanced. And all this arrogance that went into it, they were ignoring their cruelty for the sake of greed. That's what they did, unabashedly. And we're the descendants of that. We have, it's, not, it's not our original sin, but what can we do about it? So far gone is the feeling this book gives you. And this is where it starts for me as I was reading it, that I could see why maybe Wild West didn't take off. That This is a real, it's hard to play through a guilty period. It's almost as if reading this book, I was thinking to myself, man, I should just play a Native American tribe. Right? I didn't see much room for me to do anything else. But then I said, but that's the tragedy of the world of darkness, right? That's the point of the Savage West, that you're supposed to come in here and you, the players, make the difference. Right? That's, we know what history says, and that's the backdrop of what you have, but can you change it? Will you change it? Kind of when will you rage? And that makes a lot of sense um, for this aspect, but the Fianna and Children of Gaia already gave me two black eyes, and I was hesitant to get to get a Fenris. But they shocked me. When you get to get a Fenris, you know, they're, they're established as savage fighters, but with proud traditions. Well, that was interesting. The outlook of the offenders when they get here is that, yes, they want to come and prove themselves to be worthy of territory they're taking. Well, that's different. See, the get came here and they heard challenges. They heard there were things they could fight and oppose and make something of themselves. Why would they get that opinion? Well, the pure lands is dominated by wild energy untouched. This is a land nobody knows about. So it becomes a great place to make your, your claim if you can do that. But none of the propaganda coming out of the, the early settlers that got here was saying that it was an easy place to be, right? We're talking about resistance on all sides and you can look up for yourself. I won't rehash the bullshit stories about how savages and can you know what I mean? The, the, the propaganda machine against native Americans that were here, uh, also painted the guru that were here with them. So to the get, we don't know who or what you're talking about, but we're going to come here and see what's what. And so when the get, get here, they do what get do. You know we're going to take over this territory because we're following our canyon decided to come here but they're following artisans and farmers that's distinctly what the get offender's kinfolk that's who they were following so basically where prairies were at is, is where they wanted to go And when they got here that's what they were doing however when they got here and to get do what they do they they go to sense places out and feel out where there's cairns it's kind of what guru do and what they can do and they do just that And when they get to certain spots they find weird things. I mean, by weird things, they may have found Wendigo who were camping there and said, You're going to get out of here, or else, and the get where we're literally the epitome of, Oh, now we found why we're here. You said, Or else, let's find out. And the get had that war. Now, remember, the get don't know who the Wendigo are. The Wendigo don't know who the get are. It's like they're learning of each other just now. Now, they know their guru, but that matters little when you're looking at territory and invasion. And already, the Wendigo have been. Dealing with the fact that the Utena have been forced upon them as other settlers have been uprooting uh, vast amounts of native territory and forcing the natives who didn't want a war, who agreed to leave, versus death and were sent down onto Wendigo territory. That's where they had to go and migrate to. This pressure meant that the Uctena and Wendigo would be at odds. They're territorial, they're battling for terrain, and then the Wendigo had to make peace with them and understand the real enemy are these European settlers who are coming in here and forcing this condition on us. Well, now on top of it, you have the get calling challenge for Cairns, because while we're busy fighting each other, the Utena don't have time to tell uh, the, the Gru Nation what they're doing. You've been wondering maybe a little bit why the Wendigo, why the Utena and the Croatan call it the Pure Lands and what they were doing. And you may have the distinction of thinking it's called the Pure Lands because they felt that they were pure people or that they were better than the world, that their way was the only way. It has, none of the, none, it has to do with none of those things. It has to do with the fact that the pure tribes, Croton, and Wendigo, and Utena got here. They found the worm, but the worm was not in power. The wild was. So they agreed to tend to the wild's ways, which are Gaian ways, and work with the people to eradicate the worm's influence to eliminate this corruption. And so what they did is they hunted the worm, which is what the Gru's supposed to do. And any bane they found, they would kill. And if it was too powerful to kill, they bound, they put in the ground. And the Utena spearheaded this idea that they would develop a system of chain cairns that were linked mystically that they could keep tabs on and keep these things dormant and out of the way of man. So it couldn't harm anyone. And because of this, and it was a clean area that was filled with wild energy, it was called the Pure Lands. And they're called the Pure Ones. Now all they had to do was the Wendigo and Croton had to focus on the people that were here to try to teach them to get along, along with the Uctena when they weren't tending the Banes, right? That was the idea. That was the whole idea of what they had going on. This gets wrecked. As the settlers get here, don't care to talk to them, don't care to understand them, and just take, take, take. And the get were no different. However, the difference of the get is the fact that there's some begrudging respect earned because when a Fianna takes over a cairn, half the time they didn't even keep it. Literally, they came through with the settlers, and the settlers did what they did. or people need land, to got land, great, we're moving on. There's more land to take. It's like they couldn't settle, they couldn't figure it out. And eventually they do make a few cairns, but they give the impression that wasn't their focus. So they might sack a cairn or weaken protectors and whatever, and whatever was dormant in that cairn, boom, awoke, did whatever it did and moved on, most likely corrupted the people who settled near it foolishly. I have no idea what happened with that, but that's, that's some of the primordial horror this game is talking about. The other aspect is, is that when you kill a people and force them to march away from you, and you're at war, they don't want to tell you how to better tend the land. And that's what the lieutenant did, right? But here's what the get did. When the get took over a territory and they saw something dormant there, they tried to kill it. It was that simple. And most, and most of the territory they took, that's what they did. And we'll say that maybe they took low-hanging fruit, say what you want to say, but mostly how it's written, wherever the get claimed territory, whatever they took over, they found and dutifully hunted down Bane spirits. They took over the mantle for the lieutenant, kind of show them how it's done. You know, we're we're vigorous, we have our strength, and we're willing to prove it, and we're gonna do that. It's exactly what they did. They had ways of trapping banes, but they had no interest in doing it if they could eradicate a bane. And so that's what they did. And they kept doing it. And if they couldn't do it once or twice, they didn't just quit, they kept at it. So imagine a get caring that we can't kill this bane, but he can't grow strong either because it's spending its whole time fleeing these these get who are having a heyday hunting it down. I can't think of a better vacation for a get than to go to a land where they can unchecked, constantly test their strength, besting a foe again and again and again until they find a way to kill it and ask what they're doing. And to the Utena, they kind of smiled to see that was done, but then they also looked to the Wendigo and kind of tapped their nose and said, I kind of know someone just like them. Referring to the fact that the Wendigo were a lot like the Geta but not that the Wendigo would ever admit that. But a begrudging respect was held for the Geta though they did not like what they were doing, when they were taking territory, not theirs. Um, Not that the get gave two shits. But moving on, Iron Riders were also an obvious one that was a problem. Now, they're going to try to tell you that the Glasswalkers were amazing here, right? They decided to call themselves the Iron Riders because they knew the Weaver had power, and they knew the Weaver needed to be used and tapped to fight the worm. That's that's what they're saying. They came to the Americas to fight the worm using Weaver tech. Um, I kind of find that laughable. Because we know what they're about, this tribe is about money, wealth, um, all the things that mankind was doing. And that we know we're considered mankind is the children of the weaver. We've established that already. We've had strong energy with them. The glass, basically, the iron riders. Sorry, call them glass walkers. One of the same, but the iron riders at this point said the future is the weaver, and so we're getting in bed right now. So they went in hard on railroad uh, expansion and the telegraph right? Communication and transportation across vast territory as fast as possible. And this is going to bring industry supplies, you name it. And we're going to be able to make multiple cities everywhere very fast. We can do that. No problem. I mean, to you, it may sound like, ah, what's so wrong with that? We know what's wrong with that. There's a lot wrong with that. Many stories of corruption and greed and out and out, I would say genocide, depending on how you want to look at it, attempts were going on to make sure these railroad tycoons can get theirs and get it brought in. Cleverly, they're not even talking about oil yet, which was a thing, right? In the West, there were territories fighting oil, but that would be even important, right, as well. And so, we know the Iron Riders are all about it, every bit of that, without fail. So, when you look at that, it's like, okay, so they're going to come in with the Weaver. What is the big deal about necessarily them coming in to build one railroad? Bob, the Americas aren't that big, so you have a spider web of pathways that you know the Weaver can chunk out. What's the big issue? We'll get more into it, but let's just say that if all there was was wild energy before they got here, native ways, living to the earth for the last like 10,000 years, it's all that was here. You're coming in with a railroad. You're coming in, forcing a way of life on people and carte blanche. You're not asking any forgiveness. There's, there's nothing you want to say beyond we're taking what we're going to take. And we can do that because we have the money and you can't stop us because we have the power. We don't care you're not seeing your own moral corruption. Right? There's an old adage, you know, never do something to someone that you wouldn't do for you. Right? If you don't want it happening to you, don't do it to someone else, that sort of thing. Um, well, the Iron Riders never learned that lesson. And they were pretty convinced that the Weaver was the way to go. So that's what they were doing. Now, uh, again, if you're the natives, well, uh, let's just look back to the Nuisha book. We talked about that intro story of what was going on. And that, that is a tale and then a Nui comic book beginning of the Wild West, where racism is like, hey, you're native. I should throw you on the tracks in front of a train to the onlookers of everybody who didn't tell them to stop. That's fucked up. Right? That's so messed up. I came to get into it. You can't see your own moral degradation right there. Not only that's not even Christian, but you were willing to do that. Like the hypocrisy is real, but that's what corruption is. Right? You're willing to ignore your behavior believing you're in the right because there are lesser people. That's moral corruption. You're so twisted, and that's, that's the whole Iron Riders at this point. No matter what you say, expansion. No matter what you say, as long as we've improved mankind by whatever speed they think needs to be done to get things to people, it's justifiable. And you should never have to justify moral corruption, my guess. When we get to the Red Talons, though, this is a little breath of fresh air. We see that the Red Talons uh, in Europe, they were being hunted to near extinction, and so they, of course, came to the Americas. They tolerated being hominid long enough to get here, and then they spread out to find the wolf populace that was rumored to be here. And of course, there were wolves everywhere. A lot of wolves in the frontier. And so they run out there and are able to kind of recoup their numbers and grow and actually become rather dominant sized. As the Red Talons, in, in and of themselves, what are they doing? They're avoiding homins, they're avoiding where, where any form of expansion is going on. Don't want any part of it, and they would very much like to stop it, but they're first learning to adapt. And they see these huge amounts of territory into a wolf's perspective, it's like a whole other world they discovered. Right? When you think of all of Europe could practically fit in America, I bet you to the Red Towns, oh, this is where we were supposed to be. And that was that. And they knew that because when they encounter the uh and Wendigo, um, there's a begrudging respect because the Utena and Wendigo, all the natives really, they, they see the wolf as a spiritual brother. They don't have a problem with it. And so the Red Talons are, we're going we're gonna to hump your lupus. And they're like, yeah, have fun. And so slowly, the lupus of the Wendigo New Tennis start making, well, basically taking them to become Red Talon. Like agreeing to a lupus nation is what's going on. This, of course, ends when uh, you got to expand uh, far enough or early enough and you start getting attacked by wolves or your cattle are being slaughtered by wolves or whatever. Because uh, what, what do wolves see a cattle ranch as? Most likely a killing ground. Oh, this is where the food goes now. Well, that's weird. Well, we're just going to eat what we want and leave then. Well, welcome cowboys, right? Now we're going to have cattle hands to cowboys run around to shoot these wolves to protect what we have out here. We can't have our livestock being ate because we want to eat them. Interesting thing. But they don't settle for that, right? It's not just come here and kill wolves. And then they also want to kill wolves for pelts and many animals for pelts. It's also slaughter the bison main food source for a lot of native american tribes we're not going to come in and kill far excess of what we need uh all, everything all in the name of expansion and clearing land and making it safer well all right well we appreciate that but the red talons, as you can believe at this point they're on top right now but this is telling their tragic beginning of where they're being hunted and damn near everybody wants to hunt them red talons can't keep a territory and i'll tell you exactly why any territory they have you bring your kinfolk and your settlers They'll handle their kinfolk, and they're here to protect their kinfolk and to grow their tribe. So they're kind of marauding as much as anything else, and it's the Uten and Wendigo that are giving them space and places to establish their spiritual cairns as they have them. That's just showing that that's why they're in bed together. Um, But, let's get to the Shadow Lords. We can sum up the Shadow Lords simply. They're decks. There's really no reason to go too much into that, but I'm going to, of course, but I want to point out that they're just assholes. Dicks. Really dicks. They don't have a sense of humor at all. In fact, they, they mark them in here, the Shadow Lords are so ruthless that when they get over here, they decide to more or less infiltrate these towns and establish themselves in important roles and positions. Not important enough to call themselves any leadership amongst the mortals. They were happy to be amongst them and kind of be like, you know, representatives of banks and representatives of the law and things of that nature. These important spots that would allow them to do things and, and change laws and ways to make it better and more power for them when they need it. And also they knew silver fangs were here. And this is the other shoe. I call that the, uh, the same side of the crappy coin because what the shadow Lords did, we're going to take all the quiet influence roles to control life. We're here to control these areas and influence them from afar. You won't even know we're doing it until we want something. But if you mock them, look, I, here's this a snidely whiplash is what the described to describe to, is, to me in this book. That they're the ones controlling the bank with our twirling mustaches. And we are the oil barons. <laughs> and we hire vast amounts of people to shoot and hunt who we don't like. And those who shoot and hunt you, because we paid them to do it, we will also turn around and give them jobs of prestige so you can't prosecute them and therefore we're safe. That's what they read like. Because they add in there that anybody who would make fun of them, it would be a lethal thing to do. Because odds are the Shadow Lords would deal with you. And in a, in a very grim way. And I was like, cool, what an entry. Trust me, I'm back to my my whole my old dick comment. But anyway, um, when we get to the sh- uh, excuse me, the silver things, though, my thoughts on the silver fings were a little weirder. Because of the Shadow Lords of the Stick, like even if it's behind the scenes of the stick for everybody, right? The impergium's over in quotations, but nothing said about controlling you and you didn't know it. That's acceptable. And we'll kill those in the way. All right, great job, ruthless assholes. Um, into the silver fangs. I sat here and said, what the hell does the silver fangs need to come here? In Europe, they're established in a royalist aristocracy, practically. They're rulers of the guru nation already. They're over there saying they are. The tribes agreed to it. These are the people who are coming over to make territory for themselves. And apparently these greedy bastards were like, no, we're going there too. Because we have people in our tribe who aren't on top. Who need to learn to do that? So why don't you go over there and form a protector? Because those Guru need to be led. And by golly, we're the ones that Gaia said should lead. But you're going to do it with some style. You're going to do it with class. I want you to go over there. And all those beautiful cities that the Iron Riders are making. And the Shadow Lords providing the jobs in. And kind of establishing who does what. You need to go in there and bring the culture. That's right. You show these people what opera is. You freaking acting. You bring in like art shows and whatever and museums and to establish greater things and influence the building of maybe a hospice more than so and some churches and all that stuff. We want culture because we will show all the guru how to behave by being cultured people instead of the savages we know a lot of them are. And this in turn will teach the natives to naturally behave because our behavior is such that whatever the silver things do all of Gaia and humanity will actually do because they will know how to get along yeah me too um, I read that stuff and kind of looked at it and was like these are the people who really aren't getting I mean I don't even have to say it but it put a bile in my throat to read it right because I like both the Shadow Lords and Silver Fangs Shadow Lords I like because they fill a villain quota but typically up to this point it's that they were willing they're pragmatic they're willing to do whatever it took to go against Gaia and here it reads they were doing whatever it took to benefit their tribe. They came over here for a power grab, 100%. So of the Silverfangs. Right? They could be the same tribe. It's the same methodology, except you're saying one went with entertainment and one went with industry. Really, the Glasswalkers were went industry. I guess you could say the Shadow Lords banking or whatever. But they piled on in the same shit sandwich where it was like, wow, I can't believe. Okay. It is what it is, right? And now I'm all bored, right? Why play anything but Utena or Wendigo to Wild West, at least in Bob's opinion, because I know who the bad guys are. Let's line them up. But I digress. When we get to the actual Utena, kind of already tipped their hat as to what they're doing. The Utena have always had a mystic bent to them. And even here, we know uh, through various books we've already reviewed that the whole point of the Pure Tribes, and I already went through it once, is that the Utena, th- they're just here to learn. There's a whole mystic landscape that's here. Like, we're talking spirits untold of, ancestors never tapped, things to get into. They're trying to discover across all these cultures, everything that there is. Right? It's never enough. They're ever curious, the lieutenant. Well, that's cool. But then they also discover a problem in and we know what they're doing about that. They developed this spirit network of prisons, so to speak. Well, um, the lieutenant also had a massive problem in the fact that our kinfolk were too far spread out. And that's what this book kind of highlights. The, the flaw is that the lieutenant's curiosity took them far and wide, and they took advantage of the fact that we have all this territory. Well, they spread thinly out and exploring, which meant that the cairns they did establish, they were telling the tribes there, hey, you need to protect these areas, and that's great, they did it. And when you had the Croatian, they were able to do that. And the Wendigo had the turf they did, so that was okay. And they vastly left huge amounts of area untouched by them because it was already wild dominant, and there was no danger there. Might be a few banes, but nothing the wild can't handle. So we're good. But when you're in this powder keg of people coming and taking over and tearing apart the landscape and changing the way of life, mass killing your people, you're trying to collect your kinfolk. And that's exactly what the Uktana feel like. They're running around trying to counter the world who well, are slaughtering Native Americans. And they're trying to be there for their people. And so they're trying to target what important cairns are there to get their kinfolk to save them and do whatever. And you can imagine when you get there, and there's a U.S. Army forcing people off or out and out, killing them because they're in the middle of a war with it. Well, I'm too late. Now i got to take survivors to leave, but that cairn, we can't protect it. And there's, there's evil-ass Bane energy being released by these people coming through. They're just going to feed on it if they're not already freed, and up, lo and behold, they are. And how do they learn this? Well, they're noticing that with the wormcomers, as they say, and these towns and these wars, more and more people, Native American and settler alike, they're becoming changed. They're becoming mockeries, as they call them. And it's just a clever term for Fomori. And it's the Fianna who coined the term Fomori, by the by, but mockeries. We know what they are. You know what Fomori are if you've been listening. If not, just imagine people becoming corrupted and then eventually, when our will is low enough, possessed by these evil entities, these banes that are feeding on what they're doing. And they're becoming even worse. This is where you get stories of somebody who, uh, what is it, a term a Fianna was called? A Yagon native. Right is what they throw in this book. It means something completely different. But in a, in a movie I watched once where, for the West, when somebody was called going native, it's when they were living off the land, but scalping and killing other people, especially their own. They, they, didn't, they didn't discriminate. Basically, they were taking turf and they were ambushing and doing horrible, horrible things where nobody could see to their own ideals. And in here, it describes that Baines would very much do that. Like, uh, corrupt uh, why would a landowner become corrupt, seeing as what they already did? Well, there's no guilt or remorse. So where they came here before and they said, I got a land deed to take your property. You're the natives, but you got three months, six months, whatever it was to get out of here. But we're willing to establish money. So you have plenty of blankets, transportation. And we already scouted out the land where your people are moving to. And we're going to take you by train there. You're going to get off and get there in safety. And you're going to do that. No worries. Well, if that guy were corrupt, he would have said that. But then what he gave him was disease blankets. And the food he decided to give him was like bread ration and it's like a three-week, three-month trip or whatever it is they had to go on, and they're only going to take him halfway and tell them to get out at one town, and had to walk the other 300 miles to it. And, that, and that's, that's a corrupt guy, right? He went from being nice and reasonable and maybe yeah, it's a shit situation, but here's what we're willing to do, uh, to being just a tyrant about it. And that's, uh, that's the effect. That's what was bad. Are the lieutenant woe is me, though? Do we want to say that? Do we want to say they're complete victims here? I will tell you 100% that I don't think they're complete victims. Yes, they were victimized. Uh, undoubtedly victimized, but completely? Here's their stain. You could have talked in the high tongue, the guru tongue, to the very first werewolves that came over, or wherever you encountered them, and explained to them what you were doing. That you had powerful banes trapped in the ground. They were in prison. And they had to be real careful not to wake them up and bring them in the fold to understand what you were doing. In other words, been open about what they were doing. Instead, when a Utena appeared to the other tribes is that they would find them. Imagine your uh, Getfiano, whatever tribe you want to say that is not Wendigo or Utena or Croatan, And you come upon this spot, and we'll say it's in the middle of a, of a savanna, right? Seems innocuous. Looks like there's maybe a couple rocks, whatever, but a weird native guy sitting down. And I say weird because you're not of his people. You don't know what the marks mean that he has. And he has like some painted tattoo things and some weird feathers hanging off of him. And he's just sitting there staring off into nothing. And he's been doing this all day. And you have no idea what he's there for. Now, your guru, strangely, you notice that people can't see him. Like normal people, your kin can't see him at all. And so you tell them to stay out of the prairie, but you get a tribe, you get a pack together, you go out to confront this guy. And when this guy sees you, he spouts some, some evil nonsense and instantly tries to attack you. And then you got to fight and kill him, and before you know it, he's slaughtered, and then here come other people across the umber, and you realize, "Wait a minute, this is a cairn. It's a dormant cairn. What's going on? Here's why. There's a camp in the lieutenant called the Bain Tenners, and they explain a lot about this when you read the Lieutenant Tribe book, is that they're a secret camp. They do it on purpose. They find these spots where a possible worm cairn was and uh that that spot they took it over right they themselves invaded took it over slaughtered the evil that was there but then they couldn't kill the bane that was there so the only thing they could do was bind it and then kept it dormant and because of that it seems to be a cairn that for whatever reason they didn't open up fully well to the other tribes that seems weak and it also seems that this guy's just a corrupted werewolf even though what it is is the worm taint of this individual as such that when they encounter this other tribe coming over, excuse me, this other uh, pack coming over to mess with this protector, often a Bane tender would be in mental and spiritual war with the Bane that's there. How they keep it slumbering is an eternal willful battle to keep it weakened. That's its point. And there would be a pack assigned to do this. But remember what the lieutenant did. They established these networks of cairns where they were doing just this. Like, like now I won't say everywhere, but it was across some territory. Well, as they're getting encountered, they're slaughtering them, and word gets out. The Utena, well, they're corrupted. Right? These natives must be bad. However, wasn't the only word. There was enough Utena to get out to say, um, well, I'll be honest. What they said was, get off my land and stop killing us. And they were forced to slaughter and moved on. But before anybody could sit down and have a peace talk, it was far too late before it was released. And uh, that's, that's what happened to all their, their good will and then what they wanted to do. Had they said something, maybe that could have been avoided. But they didn't, and that's also why it's a good story, right? Drama builder. But when you get down to the Wendigo, the Wendigo are Wendigo. I'm going to state this, but there's a misconception. Everybody thinks the Wendigo are kill whitey. They are not kill whitey. There is no pure tribe that said kill white settlers. It's not their angle. They know what kinfolk were. They themselves were not there. Think about all three of those tribes came over across an icy land bridge to the americas the tribes they settled with and made their kinfolk were not even their people initially they accepted them is what it is understood them so they had an idea of what it meant when new people came to encounter you know different people that doesn't mean they were good about it hostility is hostility you don't know what you don't know plus are the descendants of those people who came over exploring in goodwill and good faith however i digress the kill whitey mentality is something that is hyped up. It's still it's still Native American propaganda hatred. It should be out of all our books. What happened is is that one side didn't speak the language of the other, and I already explained this. When that happens, you're gonna have conflict, and people weren't willing to see peace. And when you understood the natives, and you were living in a house that had a wood stove, you didn't need to create a bonfire, but you had a wood stove, and you know you you have uh, furs turned into or wool turned into suits, and you have gunpowder and they're still using knives and bows and arrows, well, you're going to think you're more advanced. Because indeed you are, technology-wise. But what you don't understand is that they didn't have to advance because they knew how to live off the land. That's the big thing. So I'm sorry, uh, white people, F your manifest destiny. It wasn't that they were more primitive, it was that they didn't have to advance because where they were, nature provided, and they lived in harmony with nature. They understood it. Therefore, they didn't need gunpowder because they were doing just fine with a bow and arrow. Right? They didn't need any of that. I'm back to that old, that old uh, tale, or not old tale, the comment I heard a long time ago. There's only one reason a weapon system is created like a gun. That's to kill people. You don't need a gun to kill an animal. You don't need a gun to hunt. Think about that for a minute. Right? Um. So... Without going too much in the weeds on that, because I'm certain you're intelligent enough to run that up on your, on your own time. This is sort of the mentality of the Wendigo. They're sitting here minding their own P's and Q's. All this nonsense starts happening. Overcomes the uh, the settlers, and they're, they're like, what the hell? And what do you do when someone comes over to war with you? Well, you fucking war back. You came over here and killed these people who were only coming over to trade with you. Oh, well, they were hooting and hollering. We know what they do and yelling. What they were doing was showing off their pride of who they were and that they were fearless. Did they have weapons drawn? Well, I don't know what they had. They had these weird things with, with dangling rocks off of them and it was making noise. You know, a, a, a drum? What are you talking A rattle? That scared you? Well, I didn't know. It was dark. I just shot and trouble happened. Oh, okay. Well, then we're just going to kill you, too. Because what you're telling us is not only are you unfeeling and unempathic, but you're easily scared and you're stupid, but you have the capacity to kill us. Cause you learn to use whatever the hell that is to shoot down. We're going to kill you back. And they established this until someone came over and said, Hey, I know you're, you're this powerful native American group or whatever, but, um, we're settlers of a different type. Um, a couple of us learned the language a little bit, at least enough to trade. And, uh, we're not big on making a city. In fact, we don't like all the taxes that come up and things like that. And we see it leads to corruption. We can't trust the law because the law here is really whoever's in power. We don't agree with that. Um, we're just trying to live. And so we're going to coexist over here. If that's cool, we want to grow some things. If there's area, we can do that. And we want to, you know, take this out. And weirdly enough, the neighbors are like, all right, you're on notice, but go for it. We'll see what happens a season or two oh, they're doing pretty good. And the Wendigo went, okay, they're cool. Wait a second. Are you saying, Bob, the Wendigo just didn't kill him? No, they didn't kill him. That's exactly what I'm saying. Apparently, the Wendigo had a philosophy an established one that if you come over and you're cool and you can talk and say your piece and you come in peace and you live off the land, like you might build a thing or two that's your culture, but we accept that as long as you're not hurting the landscape or others. You're willing to do that and be here, we're willing to hear you out and we can coexist. And maybe together we'll learn to grow in our time and we'll see what goes, because let's face it, you, you can understand the Native Americans would see there are some pretty cool advancements if they don't harm the land. And that was the key point. And so by establishing these key points though, they give you a logic and an empathy with the Wendigo Nutena that's beyond race. This is not racism, folks, that we're talking about that happened here in the West, those those crimes. It's alienation is what it is it's the fear of the unknown it's the inability to calm down and actually uh, i don't know seek and foster a peaceful solution to what goes on it makes the reason for diplomacy a strong argument that maybe there should be people who walk over with diplomatic relations in mind to try to figure people out before you do anything else but overall this book is trying to slam home a fact that this whole tribal backdrop of what you have going on with territories and taking over and loss, you need to churn and mix in all the bullshit that you have that people make simple assumptions on. You really want to key up uh, the the fear of alienism or alienation there and um, add a lot of elements of maybe there is somebody super racist or what would happen if somebody ignorantly hunted X, Y, and Z. What would happen you know what I mean why we want to do these things and the patriarchy, don't forget that, I'm gonna hammer that up. Uh, Why we do these things is because it gives you reasons to add the drama into your game, to see it for what it is, and that's how it's called the Savage West instead of just the Wild West. Right. In other words, it's the World of Darkness version of the Wild West, and that's the point. And it gives your players a lot more to deal with than just that bad spook over there, and, you know, ghost or whatever. That's the reason. However, speaking of that, and I can't end this without mentioning it, is there a bigger picture? Is there a, a real villain in here? Is it just like a climate change? There is a real villain. What we're going to get into a little bit here, and then later on for, for part two for you patrons, we'll get to that as well, um, more in depth of this book. But we're going to talk about a phenomenon called Umbral Storms, and we have to understand what this is. An Umbral Storm is back to that point where I said it's called the Pure lands because it's all wild energy, dominant everywhere. We'll understand what the Weaver did. As the Weaver's coming in with the Iron Riders, it starts trying to war with the wild. Because, you know, you got the... Pe- Remember what happens with the Umbra? Whatever happens in the real world takes on an energy in the Umbra. Spirits manifest and feed and uh, on the energy that it is of themselves, and that's how they do that. That's exactly what's going on. But it was wild all day, all, all, all time. Well, here comes the Weaver with progress and webbing shit and trying to bring technology, and it's trying to change the landscape where it can, but the Wild's stopping the, the Weaver as much as it can. However. The wild was also beating now the worm while I was here. Remember, the worm existed because, well, mankind exists. We already know that. There's a connection between the weaver and man, also the worm. For whatever reason, the excesses of mankind, that greed, that willingness to take over territory and hatred and stuff that could happen, that the worm exists in the heart of certain people, and it existed here in the pure lands for however it wanted to be. And as it popped up, the wild was beating the worm as well. Except one entity was superpower, really two. And we're going we're gonna to get to them real quick. Um, the first entity we're going to describe because we all know it best. This is what happened with the Croatan. This is the Croatan tribe. It was the third um, pure land tribe that no longer exists, they mentioned in this book. And the fact is, is that we remember the island of Roanoke and the great mystery with that. They described the fact that the settlers who hit Roanoke met the natives and they brought with them an entity of the worm called the Eater of Souls distinctly say they brought it with them it wasn't here before but when it got here oh man did it decide it was going to kick into gear and start devouring everything that includes all spirits that includes the settlers every it was going to eat and kill everybody and the croatan perform a great rite that sacrifices themselves and their kinfolk in its entirety to getting rid of the eater of souls it was a manifestation of the worm boom they get rid of it but it's that sacrifice that woke the Wendigo Nutena up to the problems they were about to have with everyone else coming over. And that added to the hostility as well. So that's number one. Second being is called the storm eater. Now, what the storm eater is, is you had an of worm. You had the weaver trying to come in and you had the few, uh, it had this wild, excuse me, not the few, but the wild energy dominant bouncing around. There's a worm being that learned. It's a manifestation of the worm that learned how to eat the wild. Now, how was able to do this, because if the wild is ever creating energy, well, the worm is supposed to be the ender, so it has an idea how to do that. And so, naturally, they were opposing each other, balancing each other out. And the weaver served an element to want to stymie both of them, but wasn't quite strong enough yet initially. So, when the uh, Utena encountered this uh, storm eater, running around just eating wild energy and being a problem and a nuisance, uh, really just a, a catastrophic problem, they... Do a great right. They bind several banes and take that bane energy and put the biggest bane energy into the ground and chain it. It's trapped. This is what all the other Cairns were doing. They were lending their battery power, if you will, to to, to fuel and keep this great umbrella prison for the eater, or, or excuse me, for the storm eater. Well, what happens is when all, everybody starts getting taken over because such is the real world. So the Umbra follows. Also, you have the uh, spirit of industry coming through with the Weaver. This thing gets shattered out of its prison. Literally like an earthquake happens in the Umbra and shakes the landscape, and boom. It comes out. No one knows about it. Because the lieutenant are too busy getting their cans kicked. Their are people being torn apart and forced to live elsewhere. They're being removed from the land that it comes out. And it just starts quietly devouring the wild energy it can, trying to get its strength back. But it's only at half power. It can't fully reveal itself because now there are even more guru that will have the power to just come over and snuff it out. Maybe even figure out how to kill it now, because there's more of them. So instead, the weaver realizes that there's an energy coming out that he can trap and it can add to its uh, I won't say waning, but its chance for power. So we'll look at it this way. You have the weaver's energy, its big bad weaver entity comes over and says, I can bind and trap this weakened um, worm being, I can take its energy, and this is what I need to help fuel the weaver's interest. Well, the worm says, Well, eating the wild's good. I'm, I'm gonna swallow that weaver spirit whatever it is, because I don't know what it is, but I'm going to eat it. We're going to figure it out. What happens is when they find each other, they, they didn't cancel each other out, but because their needs were the same, it makes sense that they wanted to battle the wild. That's what it was all about. To win against the wild, they sort of join, right, and become this worse entity. And this entity that combines is called the Storm Eater. This causes the landscape of the Umber to change. But there's now open warfare. There's new spirits answering to this uh, Storm Eater that are just corrupting other spirits, outright destroying them, um, causing superb conflict that creates these umbral storms. And an umbral storm is not just the, you know, tornadoes whipping through the landscape and wild weather, although that is included in that aspect, but it is also something that does some very terrible things to the landscape. They talk about people who would suddenly, who are polite or calm one moment, decide to wake up one day and devour everybody in their own town. Just kill them and eat them. Like something superbly violent and over the top. That's an example of what a storm can do. An umbral storm can do to an area. Or the reverse. How a booming town of industry suddenly turns into a ghost town overnight because the people do a mass suicide and become the ghost to haunt the new town. That's a thing. These conflicting energies are because of Banes and wild spirits and weaver spirits going at it to such a degree, and of course the storm meter, that the landscape gets shattered in the umbra. And it creates this blighted area that uh, rips open the landscape, literally tears apart the gauntlet to where one could walk across into the umbra and not even know it if, as a mundane. And the spirit can just leave now, where before it couldn't. This adds to the backdrop of the Savage West, where these strange incidents now are starting to pop up all over the place. People spotting monsters never before seen, situations happening, ghost towns that are really, they shouldn't exist in odd places. And the, some of these places. Are called The Broken Lands. And I'll get more into The Broken Lands, because obviously we're out of time. When we tune over to the to the Patreon side we get to part two of The Wild West here, or The Weird West, if you get the reference. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more there. We even get into a little bit of The Blasted Lands. It also ties into The Wild West for werewolf as well. Um, but that's all we got time for now, folks. I appreciate you tolerating just me on this. I love doing these, though. Follows a cohesive thought. Any questions, answers, responses, please reach out. And uh, for our patrons, look forward to the release of the rest of this book. We appreciate your time, folks, and uh, have a good one. Thank you for listening to our 25 Years of Vampire the Masquerade podcast. If you like what you heard and would like to support us, please leave a review or share it with friends. Thanks again, and we'll catch you next time.